Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I am shocked, shocked I tell you. It turns out that sex and death are very popular subjects as recent episodes of Soho Bites and the spin-off show Mural Morsels which dipped their toes in those areas have been flying off the shelves. This sounds like good news, but to be honest, I had hoped you listeners were a bit higher-minded than this, and I have to say, you've disappointed me. I can assure you that the next episode will contain no sex and or death. But that's the next episode. This episode is pretty much all about sex and death. Hooray for sex and death! So, the last time round, I spoke to David McGillivray, author of the book Doing Rude Things, the history of the British sex film, all about the life and work of one of Britain's early smut peddlers, Harrison Marx. We couldn't not mention in that conversation Marx's former business partner, lover, model and muse, Pamela Green, who some would say was the brains behind that very lucrative partnership. In this episode, almost as if we planned this stuff, Pamela Green makes an appearance in both parts of the programme. In the first half of the show, I'm joined by the writer Stephen Fennerty to hear a bit more about Pamela Green's life before, during and after her modelling days. After that, the film under discussion in the film chat bit is Peeping Tom, directed by Michael Powell, in which Pamela appears in a minor role. After undergoing a critical reassessment, Peeping Tom is now generally considered to be a masterpiece, but upon its release in 1960, it was almost universally panned. The reviews were so hyperbolically bad and the hysteria whipped up around it was so extreme that Michael Powell's career never fully recovered. To talk about Peeping Tom, I met up with film producer Colin Vames, who had some particular insights into the film, its director and his rehabilitation. Stick around to the second half of the show for that. Legend has it that when Michael Powell saw some photographs of a semi-naked, auburn-haired former trapeze artist named Rita Londre in a magazine called Camera, that's Camera with a K, he was so taken with her that he decided to track her down and offer her a part in his upcoming film, Peeping Tom. 
The story goes that he turned up at the magazine's offices on Gerrard Street and when he inquired of camera's managing director, a young blonde woman called Pamela Green, where he could find exotic Rita, he was told that he'd already found her. Rita Londre, Michael Powell was shocked to find out, was in fact one of Pamela's alter egos that she adopted to pose in the magazine. She also appeared as Princess Sonmar Harrix, another exotic creation, this time in a long black wig and dubiously darkened skin, and she used both of these characters in some of the short, silent 8mm films that Sheen Harrison Marks produced for the home viewing market. As well as being, to use one of Marx's marketing slogans, Queen of the UK pinups, Pamela Green was a classically trained artist, a dancer, and a businesswoman who at one point had 17 employees. She worked in film on both sides of the camera and was skilled in both the artistic and technical sides of photography. These were skills that she developed more fully when working with her partner of later years, Douglas Webb. And that's not any old Douglas Webb, by the way. That's Douglas Webb who won the Distinguished Flying Medal for his part in the Dambusters raid during World War II. Stick that in your pipe, Harrison Marks. So who was the real Pamela Green? To find out, I spoke to Stephen Fennerty. Stephen is a freelance writer and a bit of an expert on Pamela Green. I think it's fair to say he's a fan. I got in touch with him on Zoom, hence the strange sound quality and occasional glitch, and asked him for a bit of background on Pamela Green. Pamela enrolled at St Martin's School of Art in 1947, and to supplement her income, she took up figure modelling, nude modelling, and moved gradually into, I think, into photographic modelling because, because that paid better. She also worked as a dancer as well. The impresario Bernard Delfont had mounted a version of the Folie Bergère at the Hippodrome, and Norman Wisdom was appearing in that, I gather. And that was when she first got together with George Harrison Marks, who was a photographer, and he previously photographed Norman Wisdom, and as additional income, he was um, taking portraits of some of the showgirls in the show, and that's how he he met Pamela. Now she'd already had a, a relationship; she'd been married previously. So a couple of years before she met uh, Harrison Mark, she'd been married to a guy called Guy Hillier, who was a stagehand who she'd met. But they divorced very very quickly. I think the marriage lasted a matter of weeks. Um, and 1953, she was together with, with George Harrison Marks and they stayed together for about eight years. They started supplying shops and news agents in Soho with, with photographic sets, uh, particularly obviously a Pamela uh, nude modelling. Uh, and that was around 1954. And then her career really took off. So when she appeared in Peeping Tom in 1960, yeah. was she already by that point a famous person would people have gone to see the film and recognized who she was yes prior to peeping tom she'd set up camera publications that's camera with a k um, and camera was a first first in the sense that it kicked off what we would now think of as top shelf magazines in the news agents ud uh, glamour top shelf magazines uh, there were previous publications like photo studio and other ones but uh, they weren't quite of the same uh, i guess uh, strength or caliber as camera with a K. The other thing to remember about this period was is that Pamela, by quite a few accounts, um, she taught Harrison Marks in terms of his entire approach. And if you want to look at it in terms of his, not just his aesthetics in terms of new photography, but also his, his skills uh, in actually doing photography. There's a quote from um, David McGillivray in his book, uh, Doing Rude Things. We spoke things. to on the last episode of Soho Bites. 
Indeed, indeed, you spoke to David. And I mean, David mentions that uh, Pamela was doubtful about the early and unimaginative pictures that Harrison Marx had taken of her. Pamela suggested that Marx follow the example of Alan Duncan, who, who was not very well known, but was a talented photographer who manipulated light and shade to sort of sculpture and texture the the model's bodies. David goes on to say that together, uh, Marx and Pamela manufactured the most exciting British sex goddess of the 50s. And David writes, she was an illusory creature. Green adopted different personalities and worked under several pseudonyms, but her candid relationship with the camera made her chic sexuality and perfect body seem almost attainable. And I think that's one of the important things about Pamela Green. She was beautiful, but she was also, there was a a keen intelligence there. She knew her art. She knew the lighting, the set at what she wanted. So she was very much uh, not really even in partnership. She, she was driving that relationship in terms of how she would appear. And this idea about her being attainable is really important when you're thinking about glamour photography. Pamela was certainly not the girl next door, but you could almost imagine that she she could have been in this glamorous world in which she inhabited. This, this idea of this illusory creature. And also, by the way, people are on record as saying that she was a very warm person as well very warm and kind person so it adds up to this whole package I think of Pamela as being this really proto media figure Britain's first nude supermodel that you can track right through to the present day and celebrity back to your original question Dom yes I think she would have been certainly quite well known by the time of Peeping Tom in 1959-1960 when that was released but also famously in uh, Naked as Nature Intended, production company Tony Tenser, it was marketed on the fact that she was Britain's, she was queen of the pinups. That's how she was marketed. So yes, I think by that period, there was no, she was the preeminent glamour model in the UK. From my conversation with David in the last episode, I mean, he seemed to be quite clear that when it came to the relationship between her and Harrison Mark, she was the brains of the operation. And he, he didn't bring, actually bring all that much to the partnership. Well, I think he did because of his swagger and his confidence. I mean, he was a very colourful character. Stanley Long, who was a contemporary, he'd actually, I think, put out this photo studio magazine, was in photography and then moved into films. Long mentions that he, uh, whilst he was a rival of Harrison Marks, they never actually met. And the only time he actually saw him was on Oxford Street and it was a Saturday afternoon and the streets were crowded and apparently shoppers were suddenly stopped and watched as a, as a man in dark glasses smoking a cigarette driving a white Lincoln Cadillac. He cruised by with a glamorous blonde next to him. And that was, of course, Pamela by his side. So, yeah, I think Brains of the Operation, I think they were well suited at the time. It was a partnership. You know, she was managing director of camera publications. The other side was that she was trained in finishing, in print finishing and retouching. So she would be able to, uh, to take the photographs because given the censorship rules as well at that time, in this country at that time, pubic hair was a bit of a no-no. So that would be, in effect, you know, the monocle of airbrushing out. But Pamela commented later, if they were exporting for a German magazine, it would be considered abnormal and strange if there hadn't been pubic hair on the models. It's all pre-Chatterley, it's pre-swinging 60s. I mean, she's breaking down barriers, isn't she? Was there a reason, do you think, for her her attitudes to sexuality and nudity? Or, did, or was it just a kind of business decision, I can make money like this? I mean, was it, was it anything that was kind of ideological about it? Or was it purely from a business point of view? 
I don't know about ideological. I think there was more to it than just uh, the making money side of it. First of all, I think she always had this artistic aesthetic. So she believed that she was making art. And I think possibly this was one of the issues with Harrison Marx is that if he was just snapping, you know, clunky nudes or whatever, and they weren't aesthetically pleasing to her, she actually wanted to create art. One of her ways of doing it was using her body. And she obviously was very uninhibited she she was very happy to pose nude she'd done it from you know, early age at St Martin's school um, and that was you know to, to get income to support herself but also I think there was that an aesthetic strand running through I mean with nature's films I mean she said in the main nature's films were made by people with very little imagination and it was to titillate the raincoat brigade in the hope of making a few bob and of course you had to make a living but overlaid over that, I think, was this idea that, you know, she'd, she'd drawn nudes at St. Martin's, she'd studied anatomy, she retouched and finished all the prints that went out of, out of camera. And, you know, le- much later in her life, she collected books on the history of the nude. So I, I honestly think she not just believed she was an artist, I think she was. And I think you only have to look at the quality of her work. You know, camera was very successful as a business. Part of the problem was that Harrison Marks used to get through money apparently as quickly as it came in. And living life high on the hog, as, uh, as they used to say. And I, and I think that was a, a struggle in terms of the money coming in and him spending it as quickly as he could. So they remained together as a professional partnership, didn't they, after they'd broken up as a couple? Yeah, they did. Any insight into how that worked? Was that a strain of any sort? I've not come across any particular sort of animosity on her on her side towards him. And obviously they maintained a professional relationship because the two were kind of locked together, I think. It was Harrison Marks was supposedly, you know, Britain's preeminent glamour photographer. Pamela Green was the, the glamour goddess of the, you know, the 50s into the early 60s. So it kind of made sense for them to carry on together. They seemed like strange bedfellows. This unpleasant, brash, dirty raincoat guy in one hand and this kind of artistic, thoughtful, warm person on the other. It's odd that they would become a couple. I honestly wouldn't I know about that. And one thing I've learned in my life anyway is it's difficult to comment on people's personal relationships if you're on the outside. Yes, there are reports that he was quite an unpleasant man. So I honestly don't know why and how he would get on with Pamela, who by all accounts seemed lovely. But I'm a bit starstruck with Pamela Green. I never met her, but I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. I would seem like any artistic relationship it would have been quite tempestuous, particularly if you're thinking about the, the world of Soho in the late 50s and into the early 60s, and all these people operating in the same spheres with each other. Douglas Webb, her later partner, I think his studio was on Greek Street. So they were all they all kind of knew each other within this world. So yeah, I would assume it was an artistic, at times tempestuous relationship, but I really don't know. Do you want to just take us from Pamela giving up modelling and then what she did from then until 2010? So after, pe- after Peeping Tom, Pamela appeared in Harrison Marks' Naked as Nature Intended, which is acknowledged as it's probably the most famous British nudie film of the period. That was in 1961. And she carried on working with him. Uh, he carried on sort of selling photographs. She appeared in the naked world of Harrison Marks as herself. And that's in 1965, a little bit later. So that's considered you know, Britain's last fully fledged nudie film. And then from the late 60s, she was together with, with Douglas Webb, the photographer, and they worked together. She modelled for him, so he carried on taking pictures of it. And together, they would do stills photography for quite a few major films. So they worked on quite a few productions um, in the late 60s and into the 70s. She did carry on doing some acting. She appeared in Legend of the Werewolf in 1974 playing a Parisian tart Douglas did the stills on that film and then she did have a stroke later in life and and her health wasn't great and they they retired to the Isle of Wight and that was I think in 1986 
and they stayed there from then on. They had a photographic studio, mainly portraiture, and, and Pamela's skills in print finishing and uh, retouching skills came in, you know, obviously were very useful there. She became a stalwart of the Women's Institute in the town of Yarmouth that they moved to. Did the WI know about her past? I have no idea. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's, it's quite some time ago now. I would imagine she would have been uh, quite a force in the Women's Institute as well. And then after Douglas died, he died in 1996, she went, funny enough, went back to where she kind of started in the in the British sort of glamour exploitation industry. She was selling mail order video of her a huge collection of her film stills that Douglas had catalogued on the Isle of Wight, her glamour stills from the 50s and 60s, and also five copies of her short, her uh, eight millimetre films. We haven't really touched on that. Prior to Peeping Tom, she made a number of short films, striptease films mainly, The Window Dresser probably being the most famous. But she was selling these mail order and... And then sadly, she died on the 7th of May 2010. Uh, she'd had leukemia and she had been in poor health. But I think she had a, a good life. She had a long life and a very productive life. And I think British culture is, uh, is all the better for Pamela Green being around. She's way more than a footnote. She was a, uh, as I said, Britain's first nude supermodel in her time and the glamour goddess and, and much missed. Thanks to Stephen Fennerty for taking time out to talk to me. At least one of Pamela Green's short 8mm striptease films has been saved for the nation by the BFI. You'll find a link to it and to Stephen's social media contacts on the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. But if you're at work, maybe wait till you get home. It's a bit saucy. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Peeping Tom begins with a pre-titled sequence, the calculated murder of a Soho sex worker. Although we're spared the actual moment of her death, we do see the build-up to the killing, from the approach on the street, via the negotiation over price and the short journey to her flat, to her final terrified scream, from the point of view of the murderer, or rather we see it from the point of view of a camera concealed inside his coat. We are complicit in the murder. Then, as the opening titles roll, we sit through exactly the same events again. This time, though, instead of the woman's dialogue and the garish Eastman colour, we see it in silent monochrome, accompanied by Brian Easdale's stark, portentous piano score as our killer re-watches the murder projected onto a screen. Even by today's standards, it's a shocking, brutal and disturbing few minutes of film and sets the tone for an uncomfortable watch. Although the critical demolition of the film was arguably over the top, there are some examples of the hysterical reviews quoted in the upcoming interview, director Michael Powell was perhaps being a bit naive if he didn't foresee some sort of backlash. This is a difficult film, one in which we are asked to sympathise with a sadistic serial killer. 
The central character, the murderous peeping Tom of the title, is Mark Lewis, played by German actor Karl Böhm. No mention is ever made of his slight German accent, and the character is English, so it's an interesting casting decision. He's a shy, awkward, sensitive young man who, we soon learn, has been irrevocably damaged by the psychological torture inflicted upon him as a child by his father in the name of science. Mark works at a film studio during the day and supplements his income in the evenings, working for a newsagent. Not by delivering the evening standard, but by photographing naked women in a room above the shop, the prints of which are then sold to men downstairs in large envelopes marked educational books. There are moments throughout the film where Mark's psychosis and his mental trauma is so close to the surface when he's triggered into extreme emotional reactions by quite normal sights that it's difficult to see how he's got as far as he has in life without his behaviour having been brought to the attention of people who might be able to help. As it is, he lives alone at the top of a large house surrounded by memories of his abusive father. Into the orbit of this disturbed man flounces Mark's downstairs neighbour, 21-year-old Helen Stevens, played by Anna Massey. She's naive but clever and is drawn to Mark, intrigued by his comings and goings and attracted to his ghost shyness. The attraction is mutual and the possibility that he might feel compelled to kill her becomes a source of yet more anguish to Mark. So he was a scientist. What kind of a scientist, Mark? Biologist. What was he trying to do to you? Mark, what was he trying to do to you? Watch me grow up. He wanted a record of a growing child, complete in every detail. Such a thing were possible. And he tried to make it possible by training a camera on me at all times. I never knew the whole of my childhood, one moment's privacy. And those lights in your eyes and that thing. He was interested in the reactions of the nervous system to, to fear. Fear? Fear. Especially fear in children and how they react to it. I think he learned a lot from me. Another downstairs neighbour is less naive, Helen's blind, alcoholic mother, played by Maxine Audley. Despite her visual impairment, she sees through Mark and understands there's something wrong with him. There are allusions to and mentions of sight throughout the film. Somebody innocently remarks that Mark has his father's eyes. And in a film about watching and the relentless gaze of the camera, the inclusion of this blind character with some kind of second sight is perhaps too clunky a metaphor. But her performance is one of the best in the film, and the scene in which she accosts Mark in his projection room is a high point. Good evening, Mark. How did you...? The young man bathing himself brought me to your door. I managed the rest of the adventure alone. Uh, this is one room I expected to find locked. I was never allowed keys. Can't get used to them. Is there something you think of? A talk. N next door would be my... I... I feel at home here. I visit this room every night. Visit? The blind always live in the rooms they live under. Every night you switch on that film machine. What are these films you can't wait to look at? What's the film you're showing now? Why don't you lie to me? I'd never know. You would know at once. Take me to your cinema. 
In another famous scene, tension mounts as a relaxed and oblivious Vivian, played by Moira Shearer, frolics around an empty soundstage as Mark carefully sets the scene to kill her in his own particular way. It's unclear until the very last moments of the film exactly how Mark goes about dispatching his victims, but in this scene, to the strains of some groovy jazz provided by Wally Stott, Powell allows us to see a little more of Mark's demented methods and obsessions. Oh, I do feel alone in front of it. I suppose stars never do. I feel alone without it. The great ones feel alone all the time. Then I'm great, boy. What is it you want me to act? Being frightened to death? Remembered? Yes, and I have a go. What are you doing? The screenplay and the short story from where it came are by Leo Marx, who had been a cryptographer during World War II, deciphering Nazi code. And Peeping Tom apparently came about through conversations between him and Michael Powell. Powell's contribution to the concept, plus the fact that he appears in the film as Mark's late father and that his real-life son plays young Mark being tortured, were other reasons people took against the film at the time, as it gives the discomforting sense that Peeping Tom is actually about the damaged psyche, not of its protagonist, but of its director. What are you doing? Be patient, Viv. It's going to be worth it. Oh, well... I've stood alone in front of a studio camera. That's more than most have. My guest, Colin Vaines, lives in Soho and is, according to his Twitter biography, a cigar-smoking cliché of a film producer. Known for his work on films like Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool and Gangs of New York, he is a lifelong superfan of Powell and Pressburger. Although we weren't able to smoke any cigars when we met, as we were indoors, we did enjoy a glass of whiskey, being as we were in the Whiskey Club on Old Compton Street. It was only midday, so we had thought it'd be quiet, but if you hear banging in the background, you can blame it on Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton. He's opening a vegan burger restaurant over the road, and the premises were being refurbished. Now that I say that, it seems weird, but I think that's what the manager said anyway. I don't normally drink whiskey at midday, so I could have been confused. That whiskey's delicious, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Bring more. <laughs> so, is it a Soho film? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the subject matter, this sort of sense of kind of under-the-counter pornography that, that permeates through it, is definitely makes it feel a Soho issue. And at one point, uh, the two policemen in the film, when they're driving in the car, one of them, for some reason uncredited, Nigel Davenport, uh, have a conversation about the Soho murder. So it's clearly positioned there, but it is equally clearly, for anyone that knows the topography of of central London, that they're actually the Soho, quote, exteriors are shot round Fitzrovia in Rathbone Place and Rathbone Street and Newman Passage. And that's obviously because a location manager looked and thought this is going to be a nightmare trying to get clearances to shoot in uh, in Soho itself. And they obviously came up with a way of shooting very much more straightforwardly and keeping their locations where you could literally walk around so you don't lose time in movement. It's so very, on. very close. I, I, very I, I think close. it counts, doesn't it? I think it, well, it does. And also the film is, is in essence, it's got Soho in its fabric in a way. Yeah, so, exactly. Yes. So it's, the film is quite famous for reputedly having ruined Michael Powell's career. I've got a few quotes here. 
One from The Standard, which says, Unfortunately, Michael Powell's new film is just a clever but corrupt and empty exercise in shock tactics, which displays a nervous fascination with the perversion it illustrates, so suggesting that he was also a peeping Tom. The News Chronicle described it as amateurishly repellent. It's bizarre. The Express, this is one of my favourites, Len Mosley in The Express, he'd just been travelling in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, and he says, Powell ought to be ashamed of himself. Nothing, 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 neither the hopeless leper colonies of East Pakistan, the back streets of Bombay or the gutters of Calcutta has left me with such a feeling of nausea and depression as I got while <laughs> sitting through a new British film called Peeping Tom. And The Guardian said it heavily assumed an air of psychological studiousness, so suggesting it's a bit fake and it's mm-hmm. all just denied. Mm-hmm. just wants trying to show a few boobs and things. There's several factors at work in the way that it was received. First of all, we shouldn't forget that Powell and Pressburger, their films were not received universally well, certainly by British critics. And I think a lot of that comes from a deep-seated aversion to anything that wasn't social realism in the British tradition. But there was uh, several of the reviews, I think, at the time referenced back to things that the critics had been, been obsessed about, about their films. That in A Canterbury Tale, there's the character that pours glue into the hair of women that are fraternising with Americans. And this glue man seemed to haunt people, a bit like a Freddy Krueger character, that it was referenced often in reviews about their work. And somebody else referred to a morbidity in their films, like in The Red Shoes and so on. And the truth is, they dealt with pretty deep issues, and they did them in a way that psychologically, I think, is very interesting, because they they were real, in my view, real filmmakers. So that was one factor that the critics were kind of slightly lined up against them anyway, and in this case, obviously, Powell separately. And secondly, that there was a reaction to Hammer films. We've got to remember the impact that Hammer had. This was only two years after Hammer had really got going. And there were a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon to see what they could do. And if you read any contemporaneous material, like from the census board and so on, there's a real sense of despair at, at the way that, that people are jumping onto making films which are seen as being rather lurid and exploitative. And the company that made Peeping Tom, Anglo Amalgamated, had, um, had, had, was also involved in several of these kind of rather lurid films. Even the look of the films, it's quite important to note that Peeping Tom is shot in Eastman colour, which is what the first couple of Hammers were. It's a very lurid stock. Sort of saturated, bright. Oversaturated yeah. and really, like, slightly unpleasant. It looks cheap. I mean, in fact, it's perfect for the material because it does imbue it with this slightly garish look and feeling, which is kind of not a bad thing for this kind of world that we're we're burrowing into. So the the truth was that I think that the critics, to some degree, always had it in for Michael. He was also someone who had a reputation for being a little difficult, so we say, and that that, that people were sort of aware of that as well. And I think that might have kicked into these, these things. But it's now considered to be a classic. Yeah. 
when did this change? In- it changed in the 70s, really. It was like, I, I remember when I, so my, my history with Michael Powell, effectively, was that when I was 10 years old, our English teacher read us the book of A Matter of Life and Death, which was one of the first films to be novelised, apparently. It had been the Royal Film Performance. It was quite a big deal. And then on the last day of term, he showed us the film, which we didn't know existed. And that was a real road to Damascus experience for me. That was like, I watched this, th- this film and thought, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. So uh, I was kind of really obsessed about Powell's films and I saw all the movies. And in Britain, there was a kind of a, there was a beginning of a little bit of a resurgence. He was still considered very much yesterday's man. And the prevailing critical norm was still for social realism and not for anything fantastical. He was still regarded with some suspicion. But there were a group of young critics like Ian Christie and there were people like Linda Miles at the Edinburgh Festival who were determined to kind of to get the films shown and, and seen again. So there was already a movement towards it. I joined Screen International in 77 as a young reporter. And almost immediately after that, Michael was coming into the office because he'd just been to Telluride where the beginning of his real resurgence started because he'd been to collect an award there for sort of lifetime achievement, which Scorsese, who was a huge fan, gave to him. And he came into the office and my, all my colleagues scattered because they said, oh, my God, this man, he's such a bore. So he came in and all I wanted to do was kind of gush and enthuse. But my colleagues wanted him out of the office very quickly. So I was unable to have more than a few words with him. And anyway, fade and dissolve to the Cannes Film Festival, the year of King of Comedy. And I'm standing at a reception at the Carlton and there's a bloke in a three-piece tweed suit standing in the corner. I go that looks like Michael Powell, which it was. So I went over, introduced myself, and finally was able to say, I just want to tell you, you don't know me from Adam, but you're the reason that I'm here, and that your films have meant more to me than any other directors, and that Matter of Life and Death is my favourite film of all time. And he started tearing up. It was really like, it was just such a fabulous moment. And so I was able to kind of to talk a little bit about all of that. I didn't, obviously, we didn't touch on Peeping Tom, But years later, I went to work with um, Scorsese on Gangs in New York. And Scorsese was one of the key people in in terms of Powell's rehabilitation, wasn't he? He was was obsessed with Powell's films, like me. I mean, Scorsese and I have a lot of things in common, not least the fact that he was an asthmatic little boy and I was a fat little boy, and that neither of us wanted to play sports or do anything, so we watched movies. And we both sought out Peeping Tom in our particular ways. At the time I was growing up, it was a film that was seen as being this forbidden fruit kind of movie, and I think I probably read about it in... One of the first books I bought on films when I was a kid was Carlos Clarence, you know, illustrated history of horror movies. So I'd read about it and things like that and really want to see it. And when we had our sixth form film society, we hired a print of it. Now, I have to say, at the time, we were much more um, amused by Maura Shearer doing her warm-up routine to <laughs> Wally Stott, who, by the it's way... It's fantastic. Should... Yes, exactly. But we just didn't get the film. It looked very dated. It looked very, very old-fashioned. It just didn't... It didn't sit with me in the way that Black Narcissus, Red Shoes or whatever had sat. What do you think of the film now? I think it's a masterpiece in its own way. I was quite surprised watching it again because like you, I haven't sat down and watched it for a while. And it just gets you on a very deep level. It is, it's a very dark and disturbing film because it does that very thing 
that, that they wanted to do, which is it is about scopophilia. It's about the morbid urge to gaze, and we all have it in one way or another. And Scorsese, I mean, he was obsessed with it as a young person, and he's gone on record as saying everything you need to know about directing is in Eight and a Half and Peeping Tom. In Eight and a Half, it's all about the business, and Peeping Tom is about being the, what a director is, which is and this... being a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, being overly obsessive about gazing and, and, and seeing things. I think it's interesting to see it in relation to Psycho, which was released a few months later, and Hitchcock had actually seen what had happened to Peeping Tom on its release and decided not to do press shows. So he just put the film out there. But they're very interesting films. I find Psycho unbelievably modern. Whenever I see it, it feels like a film that almost could have been made yesterday. There's something about the look of it. I think it might be because he shot it with his TV crew. It doesn't have a fancy film look to it. It's kind of quite basic, although course absolutely brilliant and anti perkins is really extraordinary i mean it is a performance that could have been shot yesterday in that in that case it's interesting carl berm's character is very similar to anti perkins but what the, what peeping tom does is it's like an incredible time capsule of 1959 so you f- smell the mustiness almost it therefore feels a more dated film even though the themes in it feel so modern and so far ahead of their time. Mark Lewis as a character yes. is is much more sympathetic character than Norman Bates because I'd argue well, about you, that because well, you're you you given a sort of a sense of why he's like that. You know, he's he's been emotionally abused all through his life and as has Norman Bates well I was going to say they have a similar thing that if you've never seen Psycho and you're seeing this film it's about a man who's been abused by his mother and cleans up even down to the extent of cleaning up her crimes and then you discover that in fact he's been driven to a kind of insanity by it later on so I think that Perkins does a brilliant job of getting the sympathy of it but yes there is never really a moment where even when he's murdering people you feel that Mark Lewis's character is caught in a grip of an obsession that he's not happy about it it going on. It's a it's a really incredible performance. He does I try think. to get a cure as well. He talks to that psychiatrist on top of yes. the, on top of the lift. Yes. And he says, How long does it take to cure somebody of this? And he says, oh, about two years, and he can see his face drop. Yes. He clearly doesn't want to be doing this. And originally he wanted Lawrence Harvey who I don't think could ever have inhabited the role with the sympathetic nature that Carl Byrne brings to it. I think it's a stroke of genius to put him in the film and have him as the person that that we're carried into this story and into this world where ultimately we totally identify with him. It's interesting as well that the BFI use an image from Peeping Tom where he's kind of clutching the camera as their sort of homepage. (laughs) You know, that is the film they've chosen, you know. First of all, Powell's career and reputation was completely resuscitated between the work of the people at places like Edinburgh Film Festival and certainly in America, Coppola and Scorsese and so on just embraced him and he became an advisor in Scorsese's circle. So, like, for example, they did some test shooting for Raging Bull in colour and at the end of it, Marty said, what do you think? And Michael said... "Um, no, it's the red. He means, what do you mean the red? He said, the gloves, it's wrong. You can't, it shouldn't be red. You shouldn't be drawing attention to that. That's not what the film is about. And so he decided to shoot it in black and white. But he would, he would consult with him on almost everything at that point. And then his editor, Thelma, who'd worked with Marty since, the, since Woodstock, they'd done, worked on together, that she met Michael and fell in love with him. And he's still in love with him very much, I must say. that It's very, it's, it, it's very moving to me the depth of her love over the years after he's passed away. Yeah, she preserves his legacy, doesn't she? Yeah, she's working on a major... She's editing his diaries and papers and things at the moment. 
In one of your emails in our recent correspondence, you talked about when you worked for the National BF- Film Finance, BFI. Yeah, National Film Finance Corporation, which has now become like yeah. the BFI. And you said that their their attitude. Well, you tell me. Yeah. You tell me. So. I moved from being a journalist at Screen International and I was asked to run the development fund for the National Film Finance Corporation, it's now, which has obviously now been absorbed into the BFI. And when I went to work at their headquarters in um, Hoburn, the first thing I did was go down in the basement and look at what papers and things there, journalist instincts about what, what you might find. And there were all the files on every film that the NFFC had invested in. And one of the films they financed was Peeping Tom and I found the original file. And of course, completely in a contradictory way to the film reviews and so on that came out subsequently, it was regarded as a home run, as an investment. I remember the letter in the file that, that, you know, putting the film forward to the board for consideration. This is a um, film in a proven genre that's popular at the moment by one of the most distinguished directors in, in Great Britain, why wouldn't we invest in this? You know, it's like we're going to make money out of this. Now, little did they know that there was going to be this reaction to the film afterwards. And, and I don't know what the financial situation was. The story always goes that the film was withdrawn after five weeks. I don't know whether that's true or not, as the chap says on the Michael Powell site, that it was still playing in the 60s on double bills with things. I mean, there was this rather sad story of uh, that Powell tells of the first sort of screening. And he dressed up in a, you know, a dicky bow, I think, and Carl Boehm dressed up or whatever. And at the end of the film, people just filed past him, even people he knew and just wouldn't look him in the face, didn't want to know. So it was, it was a, I think it just hit something at a very deep level and a feeling that you shouldn't, you know, almost in a way like you shouldn't air your dirty laundry and is this too close to home? Clearly the fact that he's playing the role of the psychiatrist that's screwing up his son, clearly the fact that Columbia's son is playing the kid is like all perceived as being sort of just too, clo- too, too close to home. But Michael Powell playing out his inner demon somehow on screen. Possibly so, because obviously there were stories that followed him around that he was a difficult director on set and there's a famous story Pamela Green who plays the model in it tells of how he um, wasn't happy with the lighting and took the screens off an arc light which could have blinded her he was definitely someone who would push things to the limit and certainly had a reputation for being very tough with crews and so on, but he was a perfectionist. A few months ago, we talked about Miracle in Soho, which was Pressburger's first film after the Archers breakup. And the difference between Miracle in Soho and, and Peeping Tom, Tom is, is unbelievable. <laughs> but it does give you a bit of an insight into how the dynamic must have worked between the two of them on their earlier films, the Black Narcissus and stuff. Yes, and I, th- I think that Powell was always attracted to kind of the more extreme, if you like. I mean, Pressburger is definitely seems like well i'm just about to change what change my mind about that but pressburger in general was perhaps more uh, emotional and more drawn to those things but of course pressburger had his own peeping tom moment uh in 66 when he published the glass pearls which is an incredible book which is about a, a piano tuner working in London. And what you realise very quickly in the book is that this piano tuner is not who he seems to be. He, in fact, is a version of Mengler, and he's a doctor from a death camp who's hiding out in London. The book was crucified when it came out, and Pressburger never wrote another book after that. The other thing about the production of the film, just to go back to the NFFC investing, you look at the, the quality of the people that worked with Powell. He was obviously going down in terms 
terms of who he was working with. He was no longer working with Rankin Corder. He's making a film for Anglo Amalgamated. So he's obviously got a much more restricted budget, but he still called on many of the people he'd worked with in the past. In a world where we talk about the male gaze and so on, and this would seem to be very true in a film of this kind, he had a female editor, Noreen Ackland, who'd worked as an assistant editor with him since uh, Black Narcissus. It struck me that Scorsese seems to have worked in a similar way to Powell, having worked with the same people for years <laughs> yes. on end. Yes, you, know. well, you do, in, in a yeah. sense. If you create a great team, I mean, you look at the, when Powell really comes into his own, which is around the time of Spy in Black, when he hooks up with Pressburger, they develop a team around them. They tend to use Jack Cardiff or Chris Chalice for the films. They use Alfred Junger to design. They use Hein Heckroth doing the costumes. He takes over the design later on. So they had a regular group of people, and Powell dipped into that group for Peeping Tom. Brian Easdale, who composed the score, yeah. of course, had done Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, and, of course, there was no money. Michael, obviously, with Brian Easdale, they worked out that they could primarily have a piano accompaniment. The piano reminds me a little bit of it. It seems like a silent film score, in a way, and it seems to suit him sitting there in his attic room. Well, it's not an attic, is it? But in his room with a yes. screen. Yes. It does feel slightly... Um, I think that's interesting, because I think that... I don't know whether that's conscious or unconscious. I'm sure, as a producer, that they did it because they didn't have the money to do anything else. Right. <laughs> but having done that... I mean, it's apparently the score is performed by some great Australian um, prodigy who's mm. got some absolutely brilliant pianist. So there's no sense that he was scratching around... With, with lesser people and the quality of the film is just like I was just when I was watching it I was thinking even things that I appreciate now having made films like the camera operating is a very on a very high level it's really classy it's not a deliberately shocking film it sort of does step back a bit and that is even more insidious because you are almost part of this voyeuristic process. Apparently there were seven cuts made by the BBFC before they would release it and one of them I think is probably because you see the after effect. I suspect there was a shot of arterial spray when he, when he sticks the stick into his neck at the end because it's all over the wall in the cut. So oh, I imagine okay. it was, there probably was something quite graphic there. But that's not what the film is about. And that's what's so unfair on him in terms of, of people seeing it as being this lurid thing. He is taking elements which he knows could be box office success because there are certainly more lurid films than this made at the time. This, in terms of the principal people, this didn't do anyone any good. But, you know, certainly didn't harm Carl Berm's career, didn't harm, you know, kind of... Anamassi. Yeah, Anamassi. So it's like, I think it's it, it was really that the, the people wanted to lay the blame at Powell. And there is no question it had an impact. I mean, he went on and made The Queen's Guard, which I've never seen. Did, I've never seen that either, no. He did Bluebeard's Castle, didn't he, for a, like Hungarian television. And then and then there's only three after that. There's, there's a weird mob and Age of Consent, both set in Australia, neither which I think you could make much of a claim for. And then he did this little Children's Film Foundation film, Boy Who Turned Yellow, with Emmerich Pressburger which they did in the 70s as a sort of little jeu d'esprit, very, very inexpensive. It certainly, he suffered uh, the real fallout, and it was only when he was kind of adopted by the movie brats and was given a safe space and he wrote his books and the films were reassessed and so on. So he did have a kind of like, the end of his life was a very happy time for him, and he and Thelma were really in love, and that was a beautiful relationship between the two of them. Well, it's nice to know that Michael Powell had a happy ending, even if Peeping Tom didn't. Oh, spoiler alert. My thanks to Colin Vanes there for coming on the podcast. 
Colin has a few projects currently on the go, including a biopic, I notice, of Marianne Faithful. I wonder if it will include the period in which he slept rough in Soho. We'll find out next year. As with many of the conversations I have for the show, Colin and I had a much longer chat than I was able to use here, and it's sometimes painful to chop out huge chunks and leave them on the metaphorical cutting room floor. So I'll be posting a link to the unexpurgated interview on the show notes. If you'd like to hear the full conversation, including all my bumbling mistakes and some more banging from Lewis Hamilton's restaurant, that will be over at SohoBitesPodcast.com, where you will also find links to Colin's Twitter and also to Stephen Fennessy's Twitter, plus that saucy, not-safe-for-work Pamela Green material I mentioned earlier. As ever, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at BitesSoho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast.com at gmail.com and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review Soho Bites is produced by me Dom DeLaghi and it's based on an original idea by Dr Jingan Young you can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema until next time spend your lockdown wisely watch films listen to podcasts and don't leave that bubble stay safe and I'll be back next month bye for now (laughs) 